welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with Matt LeMay. Matt is the author of Product Management in Practice, now in its second edition, and a product leader and consultant who has worked with companies like Google, Spotify, MailChimp, and Audible. Welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for having me, Holly. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Tell me your story. How did you get into product? The short answer is by accident, which I think is true (laughs) for a lot of people. My background is kind of all over the place. I was a music journalist and then a musician, and then I was doing marketing at a music nonprofit and realized I wanted to move out of my mom's apartment (laughs) and get a grown-up job. Looked at some jobs in advertising. I looked at some jobs in tech, as an aimless young creative person does, and basically wound up at a startup in New York as API evangelist, so doing developer relations, because I knew enough technical stuff to be dangerous, but not enough to be good at writing code. Interesting. So before you go on, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Like, how did you get a role as an API evangelist being enough to be dangerous, but not enough to write code? Sure. So I had built websites for record labels primarily when my band was still active in order to pay for gasoline to get from one city to another, etc. So I knew enough of the general ideas and concepts that I could be conversant in them. And I think that my experience as a musician had basically trained me up in cross-functional work, even though I wouldn't have described it as such at the time. I knew how to work with bass players and drummers and the artists and designers who do packaging and the record labels who have business concerns and deadlines to meet. So I think I naturally fell into a connective role. I was very lucky to meet somebody who was familiar with my music writing and was able to see how the skills I had developed in music would potentially translate to a tech company environment. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have enough of that technical knowledge to get a foot in the door. And I very quickly fell into that more communicative, connective piece of the work. And at a certain point was invited to join that company full time. And I did a Google search for job in tech, bad at code, okay salary, and the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. But that's great. Just the Google search part is funny. What was that first role in tech like for you? Gosh, it was tough. I think I had a lot to prove. I was joining a team which was primarily technical folks, where not everybody was sure the value of having less technical folks on the team. I remember the first product launch I was a part of. One of our senior leaders said, we managed to ship this with no product managers. Wow. And I looked around like, never mind. So I think as with a lot of quote unquote engineering driven culture, there were some things that were really great and some things that felt like gatekeeping and felt like folks who did not have the set of skills that had been deemed the correct set of skills were not being included to the extent that they could have been. So I think it took me time to develop any kind of confidence in my own skills and any kind of sense that the work I was doing was valuable work and that doing this facilitative connective work was really critical and really valuable. I think it was very much a not entirely atypical early 2010s New York startup journey of navigating an engineering-driven culture and getting to a place of feeling more secure and confident and comfortable with a set of skills that would have fallen more under the banner of soft skills. 
Yeah, I'm sure many of us have had those experiences of working with a highly technical team that doesn't necessarily value those soft skills and finding your own way in it is so valuable. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because over time, you start to realize that so much of what constitutes a company's culture is the insecurities and fears of people on that team, more so than necessarily their deeply held beliefs that are in any way immutable or intractable. So it was interesting as I got to know people better to see that it wasn't that these were bad people at all. It was that certain sets of assumptions and expectations and insecurities have gotten baked into the way that people operate it as they do and gotten calcified into that team culture. And as we got to know each other better and talk to each other more, as I learned more about how to work through my own insecurities and approach people with curiosity and openness, I think we were able to really get to know each other on a better level and come to appreciate the differences in skills and approaches we had rather than look at somebody with different skills and approaches as I had done as well and said, oh no, if I don't have their skills, then I must not be doing a good job. So I'm going to make a big stink about the skills that I do have because that's the only way I know to feel secure in those skills rather than being really open and curious about the areas where I might have some learning to do. Yeah. So how did you come to that learning yourself? The hard way is the short yeah. answer to that. I remember very specifically working with a team of incredibly smart data scientists and being just terrified of them because they just seemed like the smartest, coolest people. It was during the exact same time that article ran that like data scientist was the sexiest job in the world. And like these were people who were making like these really funny seeming inside jokes that I didn't even begin to understand. I just assumed that they thought I was stupid and I acted insecurely and defensively due to no fault of anybody's other than my own. I was like, oh, these people are so cool. They're so smart. They must think I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm just going to leave them alone. I'm going to let them do their thing. And I'm just going to make a lot of self-deprecating jokes. And it became clear to me at a certain point that I could no longer do my job effectively unless I understood their work a little bit better. So in a moment of deep physical terror, I emailed one of the data scientists on the team and said, hey, really curious to learn more about the work you do. Maybe we could go for a coffee sometime. Okay, bye. And closed my computer and went for a walk. I just was so flush with embarrassment and got a really sweet email back. Oh yeah, that would be cool. And we went for coffee and it turned out that his team thought that I didn't value the work that they did because I had been so evasive and insecure around them. So while I was in my corner saying, oh, they must think I don't know what I'm doing. They must think that I'm some weird idiot who doesn't understand math. They were in their corner thinking, oh, Matt must just think that we're a bunch of nerds and doesn't really care about the work we do. So once we actually got to talk to each other and I said, yeah, I need to understand more about your work just to be able to do my work. The folks on that team were so excited and so generous with their time and their knowledge to sit down with me and really explain, here's how this works. Here's how we make decisions. Here's how we decided to do this and not that. And once that line of communication was open, once we had broken through our assumptions on both sides of that working relationship, we were able to get so much done and just to really enjoy working with each other and learning from each other. So when I work with product managers, I often advise them like, just send those simple, I'm curious to learn more about the work you do emails, because they might seem so simple, but they are so incredibly powerful as a way to work across functions and silos, to break down some of those assumptions that people might have, and to really learn about the awesome, exciting things in play with the people you work with, because there's awesome, exciting people doing awesome, exciting work at a lot of different companies. Yeah, that's a really powerful story. And I think that it really speaks to the value of curiosity and relationship building. Absolutely. And curiosity is so important. It's one of those things that feels so simple and basic and straightforward. 
but it requires a lot of vulnerability to be curious. You have to, again, break through some of your own defense mechanisms and be willing to talk to people who know things that you don't know and understand things that you don't understand and to ask questions that might seem naive or ignorant or poorly informed. But once you really open yourself up to that, it makes product work so much more enjoyable and so much more interesting. It does. I think it makes all work more enjoyable and interesting, but it is particularly valuable in product as well. I think that's such a strong message to send and something that resonates really deeply with me because in my first product manager job, when I first moved to a company that was a little bigger, where I had similar feelings of, oh man, I can't believe I got this job. I still remember when I applied to it that they had written somewhere that they were looking for a rock star product manager. And just getting that job made me feel like, oh man, now I have to be a rock star. And the power of curiosity and just one of the things that I turned back on time and again was just be curious about my coworkers and ask them questions. And it can be difficult sometimes when we're worried about how we look or how we come off to do that, but it's actually one of the best things we can do. Absolutely. I tell people often that 90% or so of the bad product management I see is driven by defensiveness, not incompetence. It's been really interesting to see how product managers who have a lot to learn but are open to learning will so quickly outperform product managers who think they know everything and will dig their heels in and refuse to learn new things or be open to new ways of working or to coaching or to extending themselves beyond their comfort zone. It's been really wild to see how much of the the damage done by product managers to teams and to themselves is 100% self-inflicted damage based on pure defensiveness and this idea that if they ever admit that they have something to learn or an opportunity to grow, that they'll somehow be revealed as being complete charlatans who know nothing about the world of product management, which we can all feel that way sometimes. But I think once you engage enough with the product community, you realize that everybody feels that way sometimes. And that feeling that way, if anything, is exactly why you need to be constantly curious and open to learning new things. And why, if you try to pretend that you've learned everything there is to learn or know everything there is to know about product management, then you fundamentally misunderstand what product management is and how to do it well. Yeah. So do you have any interesting stories of times where you were working with somebody who did struggle to be open to new ways of working? Yeah, lots of them. It's interesting because a lot of my work of late has been about applying really simple and basic constraints to time and format to get product managers working more quickly and more vulnerably. So I found myself in a lot of situations, for example, working with product managers who've been tasked with developing a product strategy. And this is often a very difficult ask because nobody really knows what a product strategy is. Nobody really knows what it's supposed to be. If you start frantically Googling it, as I have done many times, you'll read 30 articles, each claiming to be definitive. And some saying, well, product strategy must have these 37 things, or it's not really a product strategy. And others saying, if your product strategy has more than five things, it's not really a product strategy. I've found myself in a lot of conversations with product managers who'll say, oh, I've been asked to do a product strategy. So I've blocked out three months and I'm just going to go disappear and like learn everything there is to learn. And I'll often say, let's just try drafting something in a half hour. What are the decisions your team is trying to make? What are some different paths you could pursue? And it's been really fascinating to me how often the simple application of absolute constraints around time and format, I have a whole 
spiel I do about one page, one hour on a website, one page, one hour.com where people can commit to those constraints as kind of default constraints. But I found that in a lot of cases, getting product managers who are really afraid of doing things the right way, especially in a world where there really is no one right way, just forcing them to finish something and bring it to their team is often the single most powerful intervention you can make. And it's really great to see. I worked with a product manager a while ago who somebody had come to her and said, hey, I'm really curious what your team is working on. And she was starting to prepare a presentation, like a PowerPoint presentation. I said, I've been doing this one page, one hour thing. Why don't you just try spending no more than one page in one hour putting together just like a brief summary of what your team's working on? And she said, I'm just really worried this product manager is going to think that I'm not taking this seriously, that this looks too messy or it's not clear. And I said, I understand that. I understand that's a fear. But why don't you start with this and explain that you spent one page and one hour on it. And if they need more information from you, you're happy to provide it. So she provided this to the other product manager. And a couple of weeks later, that product manager came back to her and said, God, that document you gave me was so good. I wound up making one just like it for another team. And I was so happy in this moment because... The other beautiful thing about constraints is that it also forces you to prioritize. And so much of product management is prioritization. The program I was in at university had a one-page maximum on all papers. And it was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do to write effective term papers in one page. Because you have to figure out what point you're making. You can't do the thing where you equivocate and ramble for 10 pages, but say it was 10 pages and it was a five-page paper, so I'm probably going to get an A on it. You really have to figure out what your point of view is. So again, I find that providing and applying and facilitating product managers through those simple constraints has the dual benefit of getting them out of that perfectionist mindset and also encouraging them to prioritize what they're actually trying to communicate and who they're trying to communicate to and what. That's awesome. I think that those one-page materials can be so powerful. And I love that the person you were coaching to do that had such positive feedback. And I think that it's really interesting to hear you talk about how that goes back all the way to your college experience or your university experience. I guess I'm curious what kind of things you studied in college. I studied modern culture and media, and I wrote my senior thesis on sex in the city. So I have very strong opinions about sex in the city, both through an academic lens and through my own personal opinions. Oh, interesting. Namely that Aiden is total garbage and never appreciated Carrie for who she was, which I've gotten into some very heated debates with people about. I am happy to have those heated debates with any listeners who want to reach out to me and talk about sex in the city. Awesome. I have to admit, I haven't seen enough of it myself to be able to say anything about Aiden. I, I think that's a really interesting perspective that you have. Yeah. So it seems like that through line of the constraints has really been there for parts of your career. Do you have any other stories about experiences you yourself had where constraints were helpful? Yeah. One of my favorite experiences, I was working with a leadership team a couple of years ago at a company and they were about 70 slides into putting together a deck that was supposed to capture their vision for the company over the next year. Oof, at first glance, wow. Yeah. Okay, carry on. <laughs> and I said, this is really cool. Do you mind if I spend an hour just reading it and trying to synthesize it down to a page? Because, you know, people are busy and I think it's always good, even if you're going to use this. I try never to get into battles of wills with executive leadership teams, even if just for my own sake, to make sure that I'm understanding it. Can I distill this down to a page? And he said, sure, knock yourself out. And... I sent them the page and we got on a call and they ripped me apart. They were just like, that's not what we thought. How could you think that? You're missing the point. You missed this one really important thing. You missed this other really important thing. 
And over the course of the conversation, it became very clear that the reason this was 70 pages long is that the five members of this leadership team had very different visions for the next year. But rather than reconciling their visions, they just added slides. So you basically had five different people's slightly conflicting and contradictory visions jammed into a 70-slide deck. And my one-pager was an attempt to synthesize this into something coherent and actionable, and everybody was unhappy with it. So the most interesting part to me, though, of all this is I'm sitting there, and they're all yelling, this is bad. And I'm like, fine, that's great. We learned something. And at the end, after laying into me for, I'd say, a solid 15 minutes, and they go, but it's okay, we can use this, don't worry, we're so sorry, it's fine. I'm like, but I don't care, I spent an hour on this. Like, the whole point of this was to get us unblocked and thinking about how we move forward. I'm not actually attached to this one pager at all. That's the whole reason I applied these constraints. And it was so interesting to me to see how that very commendable, human, empathetic wish to celebrate and elevate other people's work was working against our goals in that moment. In that moment, after they had this very visceral reaction to that one-pager, their way of course-correcting was to try to salvage the one-pager rather than trying to actually solve the issue among the group. And I think about that all the time when I see product managers presenting these really long, rambling, meaningless documents, and afterwards their team is in Slack giving them kudos, saying, the presentation was so great. Everyone smiled afterwards and the slides looked really good. I'm like, yeah, but what was the purpose of this? Did we actually get anything across? Did we communicate trade-offs? Did we make difficult decisions? Did we do the things that product teams really need to do? And I think that in a lot of cases, there is an implicit incentive to do more work and to make things more finished and more polished and more impressive. And part of why I started this one page, one hour project was to shift that via an explicit incentive where you are committing to your team to keep things small and incomplete. So that as I've found with my team, if I then show up with a polished 10 page presentation, there's actually a counter incentive there. My team will say to me, you made this whole thing about one pages and having things be incomplete and unpolished. Why did you do this? So I found that in a lot of cases, unless you explicitly shift the incentive structure, there will always be an incentive to try to impress people with long finished documents. So I'm really interested in how you can shift those incentive structures because in the absence of doing so, I think it's very hard to actually create a culture of constraints and collaboration. So how do you shift those incentive structures? Again, that's to me, I'm sure I'd be curious to hear if anyone has better ideas than this, but literally signing a pledge to your team that says, I'm going to spend no more than one page and one hour on anything, and then holding your team accountable to that. When I signed this pledge with my business partners in the States, I broke it immediately. I showed up with a five-page detailed plan for a workshop. And they said, why are you doing this? I'm like, well, I really wanted to make sure we're on the same page. And they were like, yeah, but you said you would spend no more than one page. Or should we even be doing this? Like, why are you going to make this commitment if you're not going to follow it? And it turned out that, of course, there were a lot of assumptions baked into that five-page plan. And if I had brought it to my team earlier, it would have been stronger. It would have better reflected a broader set of perspectives and would have saved me the time of making these five pages, them the time of reviewing these five pages, me the time of revising these five pages, etc. And that's the other thing is that I tell product managers sometimes that showing up to your team with a PowerPoint deck is like when your cat kills a mouse and leaves it in your shoe. Like they're convinced they've given you something really valuable, but all you have to do is essentially dispose of it. And it's really not that 
great as a gift. So I think we also lose sight of the fact that when we deliver these over-finished, over-polished presentations and documents, yes, we might feel accomplished in the moment, but we're also asking a lot of our colleagues to process and synthesize and provide feedback on those things. Yeah, you're definitely making me think about times when I've done that. Hey, so I'm going to interrupt us here for our first ever sponsor. It's Product Board, a software for product managers. In previous episodes, you met Sophie Lalonde, group product manager at Product Board. I asked her how she uses Product Board in her work. We constantly track the jobs to be done and we start tagging them by different personas. This is when instead of saying, oh, I need this filter or I need this small feature that might take engineering two weeks, things that you can actually send to JIRA as improvements. We actually have an entire product line and product board that just tracks problems. Here's what people are struggling with or they want to solve. So the way that we think about it is the double diamond process. You especially have to diverge on the problems you're going to solve when you're forming a new team, which is what my team did about a year and a half ago. The first thing you really need to do is just do exploratory interviews. And what I mean by this is not talk about features, just understand your persona. What are they struggling in being customer centric? That was the task that we had. How do we bring customer centricity front and center for organizations? And so you want to talk to anyone very broad. After a while, you're going to get a good sense of the themes that you're starting to hear, and you're going to start to converge on the problems. And that's where in Product Board, what we do is when we're having all those interviews, we keep those all as notes and we start to make an understanding of our world. We start looking back at all of the interviews we do and we start linking insights from those interviews to the different jobs to be done. So that's how Sophie used Product Board when she was working to identify challenges to being customer-centric that PMs face. Look to future episodes for more stories from the team at Product Board. For now, back to our interview. So let's actually go back to your origin story. How did things evolve after that API product manager job? Yeah, I wound up getting promoted at that company to a director-level position, then going to a different company. And in parallel with that, I started writing about product management because Early in my career, I really felt like I was missing something because I had read that product management was this visionary mini CEO role where you own the roadmap and you are this like powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing entity. And I never felt that way at all. I felt like I was just spending a lot of time talking to people. I was recognizing that my work felt most effective when I was really advocating for other people's ideas, not my own. And when I was really helping my team lead the work rather than throwing myself in front of the work and saying, look at me, I'm the product manager. I came up with the ideas. I did the work. And so I started writing about this and it resonated with people and it resonated with people who I liked working with. Like it seemed to resonate with other folks who were asking similar questions and dealing with similar kind of existential crises about whether or not they were doing product management, quote unquote, the right way. So I started writing more. I did a talk for a gathering of newsroom product managers where I talked about some of these things, published it as a medium post. It got a lot more traction than I had anticipated. And I pitched a book to O'Reilly. I said, I want to write a book about product management, but I want it to be really voicey, really opinionated really rooted in practical stories told by working product managers. I want this to be the book that tells you the reality of the work, not the idealized theory of the work. And they were hugely supportive of it. That book became Product Management in Practice, which is now in its second edition. And since then, I've been doing a lot of coaching and consulting work, going into organizations, really trying to help do things like clarify team-level goals, 
work with teams to, again, apply these constraints to thread the needle and create iterative dialectical systems between strategy and tactics. Just a lot of really interesting things. I've been super, super lucky to work with some really amazing teams and some really amazing product managers and leaders. Right. My worst fear is always that I will become disconnected from a practitioner's point of view. So I am super, super grateful and lucky to the practitioners I work with who keep me humble and grounded. Absolutely. I know that feeling as well. And I love every week, every day, talking to people who are on the ground doing it and trying to help them, but also learning so much from them. They're helping me too. It's really valuable. Yeah. I have to go back a little bit there. You dropped something that I wanted to pull on the thread of, which is you, in that first job, you got promoted to director. I think a lot of our listeners are always interested in how to get promotions. And so I'm curious if you could tell the story of how you got promoted. Sure. Work for a very volatile company where your boss keeps getting fired and eventually you will become the boss. That's one like very startup-y way to do it. Right. Tell us more about that. What is the harm that you see? I think, honestly, I was promoted way beyond where I should have been pretty quickly, which is also something that I see a lot of folks struggle with, especially in startup environments. Yeah. If you're there at the right time or you have a couple of wins under your belt, you're likely to get promoted with very little guidance, with very little training in how to manage people. And I've seen a lot of people burn out or cling to some of the higher control approaches that helped them be effective when they were individual product managers. I think for me, I got really defensive and really hung up on the idea that I wasn't empowered to do the things I needed to do. I got embattled, which was really toxic for my team. And one of the things I write about in the book is that I think a lot of product managers build cohesion with their team by trying to insulate their team from the business by saying, oh, the suits are making us do this. What a bunch of assholes, but we're going to do it because we have to, but not my fault. And I fell into that pattern of like reflexively saying yes to senior leadership, then going to my team and badmouthing senior leadership, which again, works for a little while because senior leadership gets things delivered and your team doesn't hate you, but it becomes untenable very quickly. And it does a lot of harm both to the team and to the company at large. So there's a story that a friend of mine told me once about a product leader working at a famous company with a famous CEO. And that famous CEO says to them, like, can you get this thing shipped by Tuesday? This is on a Friday afternoon. Product leader says, of course I can, whatever you want. And goes back to their team and says, listen, cancel your plans. Tell your family you're not going to see them this weekend. We're locking the doors. We're making this happen. I know it's not reasonable, but the CEO asked for it and we got to get it done. Team worked through the weekend. At the end of this, some of their best engineers quit. People were having really hard times. People's families were mad at them. What do you think happened to that product leader? But the harm that did was real, both on a company scale and on a human scale. Asking people to not see their families for the weekend is bad. (laughs) I think about that story a lot because the CEO never said, you have to do this by Tuesday. The CEO asked a question and it was that product leader who turned that question into an order in order to enhance their own personal standing in the company. If they had gone to their team and said, oh, the CEO asked if we can get this done by Tuesday, the team probably would have said, of course not. And then that product leader would have had to go back and say, hey, listen, I talked to the team. Here's what we think is realistic. Here are the trade-offs we can make, which is what a truly good product leader would do. But this story sticks with me because I recognize that I used to do that too. When company leadership would say, can you do this? Or what can you do? I would treat that as an order, bring the order to my team, blame the executives for it, and reap the benefits of like 
being perceived as a product manager who really gets things done while also reaping the benefits of my team seeing me as somebody who tried their best to fight back but was powerless against the unfathomable persuasiveness of senior leadership. I think one of the hardest truths of our industry is that the wrong people get promoted a lot. People get promoted for harmful behaviors and people do not get recognized for that more facilitative and thoughtful style of leadership in a lot of cases. And I think it's really important that we as a community acknowledge that and we take serious concerted efforts to address that. I've seen the same thing and it's always gnawed at me and worried me. And for me, it's been in coaching others that I try to help them avoid that. But I'm curious for you, what does action against that look like? Yeah. So one of the things I always advise product managers to do is to stay in optionality, especially when you're dealing with senior leaders, never get into a yes, no argument. If you can present three options and help walk through trade-offs, you are much less likely to get in that situation where can we do it by Tuesday? Yes or no. Say, all right, well, if we deliver this by Tuesday, then we can't build this. Or if we deliver this by Wednesday, what are the actual trade-offs? Good product managers always think in options and always think in trade-offs. I did a workshop with product managers with a team I was consulting with a while ago where we did just some product manager role-playing where we had one person acting as the product manager and another acting as the executive. And the product manager pitched one idea. And the executive immediately started saying, what about this? What about that? I don't like this. I don't like this. We tried the same thing where two different people role-played and the product manager presented three options with trade-offs. And what was interesting was that the person playing executive could still maintain a position of authority without attacking anything. They could say, I like this part of this thing, but what about this thing? But you still got a chance to understand when I asked them to retrospect on this activity, the person who played the executive, the second one said they actually had to think through what their goals were. They had to think through what their perspective was when they were presented with multiple options. Whereas when they were just presented with one option and a yes, no battle of wills, they didn't really have to think much at all. They could just fight for what they wanted and fight relatively thoughtlessly. So I think about that a lot. And whenever I'm working with executives or coaching product managers who work with executives, I always try to get them to stay in optionality, think in terms of trade-offs, and avoid a yes-no battle of wills. I say sometimes that great product managers never have to say yes and never have to say no. They're just helping folks navigate options and evaluating those options against shared goals, which often means that if there are not shared goals, you'll uncover that through evaluating the options, and you'll have to help facilitate the conversation around what are our shared goals? What does success actually look like to this team in this moment? But you never really have to have those conversations if you are just constantly in a yes-no battle of wills or jumping from yes-no battle. That's very powerful. I think the thing in there that you said that kind of surprised me is the idea that that a good product manager doesn't say no. So tell me a little more about that. I feel like it's very, very apropos of what you just said. My brain starts to go through the things that don't they say no in this situation and don't they say no in that situation? <laughs> hey, I'm doing the same thing. Yeah, and I think about this a lot through the lens of my own career, right? Because when I started, one of the first things I was told was that good product managers know how to say no. I took that to heart. I was like, oh, I love someone to say no to everybody. So I remember one very particular case where an executive came to me and was like, hey, I know your team's working on this, but could you work on this other thing? And I was like, it is my job to get this person to leave me alone because my team has already scoped something for this sprint. We don't change the work we're doing on a sprint mid-flight. And I was just like, listen, you wanted us to work in these agile sprints. You want us to scope stuff two weeks at a time. You have to respect that and leave us alone. And he's like, all right. A couple of weeks later, it turned out that executive had been privy to some conversations that I was not aware of about some really important changes in our direction 
and where the company was going. And by saying no, I had completely closed myself and my team off to those conversations. Often advise product managers to, if someone comes to them with an idea that seems like a bad idea, find out why they think it's a good idea. Be like, okay, cool. What excited you about this? I remember once telling my engineering team they wanted to refactor some of our code rather than fixing user-facing bugs. And I was like, no, this isn't developer summer camp. We got to fix user-facing bugs. It turned out, I wound up asking one of them later, why did you want that? He was like, we just wanted to have a say. We just wanted to be involved in making decisions. Like We didn't even care that much about that, but it really sucked the way that you shot that down rather than helping us feel like we were a valuable part of the team. That's right. I have just been open and curious and said, cool, why is this exciting to you? Like, here's what we've prioritized. Maybe the thing you want to do, which aligns better with our priorities, which is more important to us. They probably would have gotten to a place of saying, yeah, we should work on the user-facing stuff. And I would be like, okay, awesome. I'm so glad we got a chance to come together as a team. I probably would have seen that they got interested and excited being more involved in prioritization conversations. But I never got to see that because I saw my job as to shoo them away. If something seemed interruptive, if something seemed like a bad idea, I saw my job as to say no to that rather than to say, well, maybe I don't know if this is a good idea or not. Our goals, our strategy should determine whether or not this is a good idea or not me. So let's look at that openly together. And yeah, maybe this is a better thing for us to work on. Again, especially when you're working with executives and senior stakeholders, they might just know stuff that you don't know. They might know that there's an acquisition coming up that is top secret, but is going to greatly affect what your team should be working on. They might know that you're like running out of money and you got to pivot to really focus on short-term revenue. They probably know things you don't know. And it is always only a detriment to yourself and your team to not learn those things. Yes, very true. And I love that response in terms of if an executive comes to you or a team member comes to you, but what about when a customer comes to you? Yeah, you should. Ideally, you never have to say yes or no to a customer. <laughs> One of the things I learned, I'm not a salesperson and I'm terrible at sales. Truly, I got disinvited from sales calls when I was exploring the possibility of being a sales engineer. So I usually be like, yeah, I mean, we can do that for you, but you'll probably just build your own solution. What are you doing? Stop right now. But I think the whole skill of talking to customers, and I know this is different, especially in B2B environments and environments where like people need commitments to things. And that's, again, where I think sales and engineering and product working together is so important. But when you're learning from customers, your job is to learn from them. And in a lot of cases, that means honestly pretending you know less about the product than you do. I was very lucky to be trained up in user research by Trisha Wong, who was one of my business partners in the States and is just a brilliant qualitative researcher and brilliant person overall. And she taught me to really play dumb a little bit, to just go in and try to learn as much about the universe of a person and what matters to them. And I write about this in the book a little bit, but the techniques you use in managing stakeholders are very different from the techniques you're going to use in learning from customers in a lot of cases. And it's very hard to make that switch mentally. I coached a product manager a while ago to do her first big qualitative research session. And I messaged her afterwards and I said, how do you feel? And she was like, gosh, that was so hard. I totally get why product managers fight tooth and nail to not do this. And I was like, yeah, I get it. She was like, I felt like I was being stupid in front of my team because I took my team to do this together. And there were all these questions, which I knew the answer to, but I also knew that my job wasn't to answer the question, but to ask questions and to learn about what customer was actually trying to accomplish. I think it's really difficult and challenging. I think, again, for folks who are control-minded and who like to have an answer ready, it's very challenging. It's a really good challenge. Yeah, that's interesting to me because I wonder what her team's expectations were of that qualitative research session and if she was thinking that she looked bad in front of them, but did they really think that? 
That's a great question. And the answer is no, they didn't think that. They all thought it was really cool. And they followed up afterwards and were like, wow, that was so interesting. And they learned a lot from it. So again, I think we all have a tendency to inflate in our minds how much other people think about us at all. I think in those cases, it's very easy to feel like, oh my God, everybody's thinking about me. And But they're probably not. They're probably thinking about a lot of other things. And the best case scenario, I think they hear one or two things from the customer that really sticks with them. And that actually shapes their work in a meaningful way. But honestly, there are very few times in my career when I've been like, oh no, I'm going to look stupid in front of my team and my team actually cares at all. <laughs> yeah. So do you work with companies of all sizes? I do. I work with big companies, small companies, medium-sized companies. What are some of the trends that you've seen in what it's like to be a product manager at these different companies? It's really interesting because when I researched the first edition of product management and practice in 2017, I asked people, what's one thing you wish somebody could have told you or you could have learned on day one? as a product manager. And almost all the answers I got were about executive stakeholder management. When I started researching the second edition and I asked that same question, almost all the answers I got were, I wish somebody had told me there's no one right way to do product management. You shouldn't stress yourself out and rage at the universe because your company is quote unquote, not doing product management the right way. Nobody's really doing product management the right way. There is no right way. Focus on having a balanced and happy life and doing the best work you can within the constraints of your organization because every organization has constraints. And it is really interesting to me to see that conversation playing out because again, I think there was a belief at some point when I was doing a lot of training work five or six years ago, people would say, how does Facebook do product? Okay, load up Facebook on your computer, get out a piece of paper and write down everything that is so bad and broken about the Facebook experience that you would fix it on day one as a product manager there. And people would run out of paper. And I'd say, look, my point is not to pick on Facebook, but to say like, every company has constraints. Every organization has challenges. You know, the white papers you read about, this is the perfect way of working. Somebody is selling you something in a lot of cases, or somebody is publishing recruiting propaganda. It is always different inside these companies from how it appears on the outside. And when people tell me, how does this company, I always tell them, like, find someone who works there and go out for a drink with them. Find out the reality on the ground because product management is connective work, which means it's contextual work, which means that it changes day to day, moment to moment, based on not just the company you're working for, but the team you're working with and the personalities on that team and the things happening in their lives. It's so deeply contextual work, which means, again, you have to be open to trying new things and learning new ways of working and recognizing that doing things by the book is not always going to be the best way for your particular team at this particular moment. So I think we're hitting this really interesting point where there's still tools and techniques and best practices, which are all great. But this idea that there is a small set of companies who figured out the magical secret of how to do product management and every other company's job is to emulate them. I think we're moving away from that. And I think that's really exciting. Do you think that's true for methodologies as well as principles? Or is it the principles are there? It's just that the methodologies, there's no one right way. I think every company needs different principles. <laughs> it's funny, one of the things I often do when I start working with a team is we write up our own version of the classic Ben Horowitz good product manager, bad product manager document where we're like, here's what good product managers here do, here's what bad product managers here do. And it's so different company to company. There are some situations where it's like almost an exact polar opposite one company to another. And again, I think that so much of this comes down to what are we actually trying to accomplish? What matters to us? What are we trying to do here at this particular company, on this particular team, in this particular moment? And it's hard to do that. I think a lot about 
Andy Hunt, one of the signers of the Agile Manifesto, wrote an article called The Failure of Agile, where he talks about how at its heart, Agile asks you to think, and that's a hard sell. It's easier to give people rules than to ask people to think. And I think that's true in general. And I think, again, thinking contextually requires vulnerability. You have to be willing to say, I'm not going to just do something because some expert somewhere has signed off on it and I'm not going to get in trouble if it fails. Actually saying, no, we as a team are going to think this through. We're going to co-create these principles. We're going to adapt methodologies to suit our needs, which means that we're going to have to be vulnerable and discuss and address our needs. It's way harder. It's way more challenging, but it's also much more rewarding and much more successful. Yeah. So I guess one of the big takeaways that I have from what you've been telling me is, like you said, how important it is to think and to think for yourself and to be curious and open and learn. Everything is really contextual and it's different at every company. And a product manager is out there or a director or whatnot is out there and they're struggling to understand whether they're doing it right. If they feel like they're doing it wrong or they feel like it doesn't match what they hear and see, what should they do? How do they figure it out? Yeah. It's a great question. And again, this is where those constraints come in super handy. I worked with a company years ago that was, I think, six months into an OKR setting initiative. They were like, yep, we spent six months trying to come up with our OKRs. I'm like, OKRs, in my experience, are most effective when they're set quarterly. And you've gone through two quarters trying to come up with your OKRs. Let's do it in an afternoon. They were just like, what? We can't. Listen, you're not going to know if it's working or not until you're using it. And I think that's a really important thing to get across. Again, these are all contextual systems. You're not going to know if your OKRs are quote unquote the right OKRs or not until you are trying to use them to prioritize and to decide what you work on and what you don't work. I told a team once that I don't care if their North Star metric is how many cheeseburgers can we throw off a roof so long as they come up with it quickly and they retrospect on it regularly. Because they'll probably learn pretty quickly that, yes, the number of cheeseburgers they can throw off a roof is not actually helping them make better product decisions. So they'll have to adjust and adapt. That's fine with me. But again, you have to start somewhere and you have to commit to retrospecting and learning. And I think if you do that, then whatever your starting point is starts to feel much less precious, much less like we have to craft this perfect thing and more, okay, we can set our quarterly OKRs in an afternoon. We can set our product strategy in a half hour so long as we understand its purpose, we understand how we're going to use it, and we have time set up to look at it and say, is it achieving that purpose? Is it actually helping us do the things that we're trying to do? Yeah, that inspect and adapt cycle is so critical. Yeah, there's something I think about all the time. In the other book I wrote, Agile for Everybody, I interviewed this guy, Jeff Koss, who runs a textile manufacturing company in Seattle. And somebody told me, you got to talk to this guy. He's using lean and agile principles to run a profitable US-based textile manufacturing company, which everybody thought was impossible. And I talked to him and I was like, what's your magical agile secrets? And he was like, the thing people don't realize is that continuous improvement means continuously acknowledging that you could have done a better job. And very few people have the emotional resilience for that. It's very hard every month or every week to look back at what you've done and say, I could have done better. The fact that I could have done better harmed people. It did real world harm and it affected people's lives who looked to me for leadership, who looked to me for livelihoods. So it's easy to talk about continuous improvement, inspect and adapt, but to get to that place where you can look at your own work and say, I could have done better and I want to learn more about and dig in deeper to the ways I could have done better is really emotionally difficult. I think about that all the time because it is so true and it's something I struggle with constantly. But I try to just push myself into that place of creating that space to retrospect and recognizing that I'm not going to have all the answers and I'm not going to do a perfect job. And the only way I'm going to get better is if I am open to taking an honest 
and reflective look at what I could have done better. Yeah, that's such a central principle. And it's something that so many people were not really taught to do. The school system is, yes, there's report cards, but it's a lot of finish this thing and turn it in and rather than the reflection. And it's so valuable to step back and look at what you've been doing and how you could have done it better, which I think is one of the things that coaches help people with. Totally. I know for myself growing up, I learned that skill through the coaches that I had. All right, I think we're about out of time. So where can people find you and your books? Sure. People can find me at mattlemay.com on LinkedIn, Instagram at mtlmy, where I mostly post fashion and food photos. I'm Twitter is what it is right now. I am at mattlemay on Twitter, but I'm not on there very much these days. I haven't yet fully done the Mastodon thing because I'm old and tired, but I might at some point. And yeah, I'm easy to find online, matt at mattlemay.com if you have any questions or want to debate Sex in the City with me. I'm always happy to hear from you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Likewise. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.